Hello and welcome to Accommodation Matters, where we talk about the topics that really matter for student accommodation. And student mental health is, of course, one of those topics. It's been at the forefront of our minds for many years now. I'm your host, Jenny Shaw. I'm the Higher Education External Engagement Director for Unite Students. Now, before we start, I do want to give a content warning because in this episode, we're going to talk about a range of mental health issues, including eating disorders and suicide. Today, as usual, I've got an expert panel with me and I'm going to ask them each to introduce themselves. Jo, can we start with you? Hi, my name is Professor Jo Smith. I'm a clinical psychologist by profession. I worked for 34 years in the NHS in serious mental health problems in young people and then moved across to work as Professor of Early Intervention and Psychosis at University of Worcester and was the Suicide Safer Project Lead for six years there. That's great. Thanks, Joe. And David? Hi, I'm David Marpus. Um, I'm Director of Student Affairs at Middlesex University based in Hendon, North London. My background initially was as a, an academic at, at Middlesex before I, I moved into professional services and now I'm Director of Student Affairs. That's brilliant. Thanks, David. And finally, Becca. Hi, I'm Becca Hayhurst. I'm Head of Student Support at Unite Students. And my background is in university student services. I spent over 15 years working within a university and now I'm bringing that knowledge uh, through to the accommodation sector working at Unite. That's great. Thank you. Now, last time we recorded an episode on student mental health, we were still right in the middle of COVID. Lockdowns, social restrictions, in some cases bereavement were all having a, a huge and immediate effect on students. Things have changed now, things are opening up, but there are still some legacy effects and new pressures as well, because of course, society didn't stand still over the last two years, things have moved on. Joe, can I come to you first? Um, which mental health issues came to the fore during the pandemic? And are these things that are still affecting students? I think what we've seen, generally, if we look within the general population, we've seen an increase in mental health presentation and referrals. We've seen that with child and adolescent and youth services. And that has also been reflected within student services, within the university sector, HE sector, that we've seen more presentations for mental health problems. I also think it's important mm. to say that eating disorders referrals have gone sky high within the NHS. It's probably one of the biggest areas where referrals and it's um, and again there's been a push towards early intervention and I think um, what we've seen is certainly at Worcester is an increase in referrals and in fact have partnered with our eating disorder service because again there's an early intervention initiative within eating disorders so we've actually been having eating disorders coming on site to run groups for students. Yeah Okay, no, thank you. And, and we will go on and, and talk about that topic of suicide a little bit later on, because I know all of you are, are doing some work in this area at the moment. David, can I come to you? What kind of issues are your students presenting with at the moment at Middlesex? It's, it's a complete range, Jenny. We, we have within our um, counselling team trying to support students a variety of um, mental health issues. We also have something called our care and concern process where we hold our at-risk students. And so we probably have at any one time anything between five and ten students that we are particularly concerned about in terms of uh, suicide. What we've found since the pandemic and the approach we now have in terms of blended working and blended learning 
the complexity that has caused in terms of responding to student needs and student issues. And is that a complexity in terms of the kind of service end of things or is that a complexity for students themselves? I think it's both in terms of the pandemic has caused things like isolation, students unable to go uh, to go home, accommodation issues. And so the knock-on effect of that is, has been more complex for universities to be able to support these students and put effective action plans in place. And did anything pop up during the pandemic that surprised you in terms of presenting issues? Um, I'm not quite sure whether surprise is, is the right because we we saw it as a the national um, situation, but really the the kind of like the increase in domestic violence that was really experienced not only amongst student bodies but also as the kind of like the nation as as a whole, and how we could support students in in those situations. I mean, one of the things we did at Middlesex was really open up our halls of residence and provide a you know, free accommodation as a, as a safe haven for our students uh, that were affected by domestic violence. Because what we were experiencing at the time was that the private rental accommodation sector just closed down so students could not get accommodation. Yeah, oh, thank you. And um, just sort of looking forward now, Becca, you, you've said that you've got the experience from both the university sector and, and now in PBSA, you've got a national role now. Given that perspective that you've got, what are you seeing as some of the emerging issues in student wellbeing and mental health? I think one of the biggest observations that we've made within the student support team is that those transitions that students go through are now more important than ever for us to pay attention to. So, for example, the transition into university, the transition during the course of your student journey onto placements or into a graduate career have suddenly become more of a concern for us and more of a concern for students because the way in which they've been taught and the way in which they've been learning over the last few years is so different to previous cohorts of students. It's been more behind closed doors, less social contact. So there's more social anxiety coming through. We have a a duty really to make sure that we're aware of that, that transitional process and that experience that students are having and working with them to help them through it. Um, So we've certainly seen that. And the social anxiety in particular is a hot topic for us. There's an increasing demand for emotional assistance animals to be brought through to university and things like that. So as a sector, it's something that we have to be responsive to. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, what's new in the student services world? What are some of the emerging trends in terms of the way in which uh, you might respond to students? Well, the emotional assistance animals is, is yeah. a big area, really, in which we need to respond to the trend. The demand is there. So as a sector, both accommodation and universities, we need to work together to establish how we want to support students and how we might make reasonable adjustments for students to accommodate those requests, particularly Mm -hmm. where they are acutely aware of how they've managed and coped over the last couple of years before coming to university. And we need to try and accommodate that where we can, but it's not without its challenges. So that's certainly one of the areas that we're looking at. The other is, is around collaborative work. So those of us on this podcast, we're looking at suicide postvention, but there's also broader work happening around general student behaviours, sexual violence, drugs use, all of those key topics that affect the age group with which we're working. We need to now work collaboratively so that whatever we do is, is reflected both in a university setting, but also in our accommodation settings as well, really setting some best practice 
and making sure that what we're doing is in the best interests of the students, but is being rolled out nationally. So that's certainly an area of work that I'm particularly interested in. And as a team at the moment, we're developing something called Support to Stay, which is a framework which will complement university processes. So university processes are around support to study. So working with students to maximise the chance of success, no matter what barriers crop up along the way. So from our accommodation perspective, it's a complementary approach. It's supporting them within their accommodation and working with university partners to make sure that students have that best chance of success. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how that that sort of parallel process has developed or the recognition, I suppose, of the importance of what happens in accommodation as well as what happens in the academic space. And I think going alongside as well the structural changes in the accommodation sector, so uh, a huge amount now provided by private providers drives that need for collaboration as well. We might come back to that later. One of the things that I did want to ask is really about students' own awareness of mental health conditions. So that's something that I've certainly noticed that young people themselves are very knowledgeable often about conditions that they've either had diagnosed or something that they maybe haven't had diagnosed, but they recognise in themselves. And I'm wondering how this affects the way that students are approaching services. Is that a change that's been seen over the last few years? Can I come to you on this first, Joe? I mean, we have seen an increased mental health awareness, again, in, in students and in the general population. And I think that's been aided by access to the internet and the ease with which we can get information. And certainly we've seen that in students and staff being able to access information from the internet. But also through social media, we can access information more easily from peers We don't necessarily have to wait to see a professional. We don't necessarily have to wait till we see someone. We can just text or use social media in order to do that. That's helpful. But one of the things is about quality checking some of the information that people are accessing to ensure that it is appropriate and is helpful. And I think that's one of the concerns that that sometimes there aren't quality checks and that can take people up routes which may not be helpful. And again, in terms of peer support, I think there's mixed feelings about social media. It can be an extremely helpful and particularly in the context of COVID has been helpful to connect people. But it can also have unhelpful effects in that actually it can lead to unhelpful conversations, too. And I think that's the thing. And it's much harder to control that. And certainly universities may well signpost people to information that has been evidence checked. We have things like Ripple now, which also helps with internet searches when students are perhaps searching unhelpful sites, which gives pop-ups to more helpful signposting. But the difficulty is people can use mobile phones, they can use personal PCs, they don't use necessarily university systems. So we have no real control over knowing what people are looking at, what information they're getting and whether that information has been tested and whether it is evidence-based. And that's, that's the concern about it. But we have a much more informed, much more aware group. And I think with more expectations as well comes along with that in terms of what people are expecting People are less passive and much more active in terms of wanting to take control to learn for themselves. 
Yeah, thank you, Joe. And I do want to pick up on that theme uh, about you know, students being more knowledgeable and uh, the expectations that that may bring. So I'm wondering, David or Becca, if you want to comment on how students are presenting themselves for support with that knowledge behind them. Can I actually think about this from an international student perspective? There is evidence that students come to the UK with mental health issues because they and their families know that the NHS and related services and how we support at universities will help them. I think when the pandemic hit, students who couldn't get home and were were left in halls of residence or in private accommodation, and then uh, very much isolated because of how we all had to stay at home, etc. The other was really students that actually went home and was still expecting support from specialists at universities in the UK. And the, the concern around how we could continue to do that when there wasn't the access in some other countries to the secondary support services that we have in the UK that would provide the, the mechanisms to support students. Is this a growing trend, David? I don't know whether it's a, a growing issue, but I know it was an issue right across the sector. Becca, have you got any comment on this area at all? I think in regards to expectation management, there is a big shift for accommodation providers to make um, so that we align better with the way that universities are operating. So, for example, universities are very open and transparent about all of their policies. Students can read those before they've arrived. They understand what to expect from the university in terms of support, adjustments, all of that sort of information. As an accommodation provider, that's the direction that I would like to see the sector move in so that we're actually being equally transparent with students about what to expect, what support they can get. Because as we've said, they are knowledgeable. If they already have established needs, they're going to know what support they're going to need what they're worried about, what we might be able to help them with. So we almost need to be in a position where we're preempting that and reassuring people before they arrive. And I think a lot of that will boil down to collaboration with our partners in particular and being really aware of who our audience are and, and how we might need to support them, but also being aware that those expectations are quite high and sometimes we might need to work with our students to actually hear what they're saying to us and to kind of navigate that area with them. So increase collaboration with our current students so that we actually understand those trends that are coming through and how we might respond to them moving forward. So yeah, expectation management is, is quite a challenging area because we can't always offer everything that everybody wants. But what we would do is do our best to make sure that what we are doing is reasonable, it's fair, it's transparent, and it's consistent in terms of approach. I think there's a lot that we can learn from our university partners, but likewise, there's a lot that our university partners can probably learn from us, given the number of students that we work with and that sort of national picture of student trends. Yeah, thanks, Becca. And uh, I'm really interested in where this might go. So it's been such a growing trend all the time that I've worked in student accommodation, that idea of collaboration between private providers and universities and also with students themselves. You mentioned that as well. What's the art of the possible here? Where do you think we could get to in, say, five years' time? That's a really big question. <laughs> I think there is a lot that's possible. As a business, we would quite like to put a finger in every pie, if we can. 
because actually the work that we would like to do will make a difference to students. So if we take some of the, the key themes that universities are responding to, such as sexual violence, domestic violence, drugs and alcohol misuse and how we can support students, actually the role that we can play in making a positive impact is huge as long as we collaborate. So we're members of AMOSHI, so that's the Student Services Organisation. We're doing a workshop this summer, for example, about this collaborative approach. So what is the role that we as an accommodation provider can play in student success? And if we work collaboratively nationally with our university partners and with AMOSHI, what we can do is provide data, we can provide insight, we can do trials. There's, there's lots of sort of developmental and research work that we can work with. And I know, Jenny, you've done lots of that previously. And in relation to student support, if we get it right and we work with the right partners and we do things in the right way, actually, we should start to see some positive results. I don't necessarily mean a reduction in the number of students presenting with mental health concerns. Actually, it might be an increase in the number of students presenting because they feel able to ask for help, trust us as a partner to refer into their university services, or even make disclosures to, to members of staff because they feel safe and supported in doing so. That's the sort of trends that we would expect to see so that we know that we're moving in the right direction. Then we can build on it, we can learn from it, and we can, we can do more, which is why it's really exciting to be in a position to be able to work with David and Joe and, and other colleagues on such important topics as the suicide postvention work. So actually learning lessons from things that happen so that we can do better ultimately. Yeah, thanks, Becca. And of course, you've seen it from both sides of the fence, having recently jumped the fence into private PBSA. But I'm really keen to come to you, David, from a, a university's perspective. What are your thoughts on this? Because you've seen it from a university working with private providers who are doing more and doing different things in this space. Where do you think this is going to go? I, th I think from my perspective, it, it's really all about partnerships and relationships. If we think about when we are dealing with a, a, a student incident that may be happening in one of our outsourced halls of residence, it's absolutely crucial that we have the relationships in place already between the accommodation provider and staff at the university so we can work together from the outset as, as a team. It's one of the things that I've noticed in my number of years I've been working with colleagues in, in Unite and other accommodation providers that there is a, a very much a willingness to do that. But I think we can all do more with that regard. I think it's really about how we can be proactive and do the pre-planning and the preparation to think about what scenarios might happen and how we can work together in those scenarios. And also understanding the impact of other agencies such as police, ambulance services, etc., that might be involved as well. Thanks, David. Joe, is this something you want to come in on? Yeah, I was um, thinking as we were talking, um, I've been involved in national roles in trying to get linkages between different elements of the system and developing joint protocols for working together and actually evaluating those protocols against real cases to actually see how it's working and how we can improve it and addressing issues and problem solving as they come up. And I think that would lend itself to this, where you've got different systems contributing, but they need to work together. I think one of the difficulties is often how external providers are seen, that they're not seen as part of the system and yet are integral to provision. 
And so part of it is is a mindset about saying this is part of a wider system. And we need to think about how that system is able to converse, communicate, link, and equally the responsibility on the university to also link. And it's you know, one of the issues we've been talking about, which is if an incident occurs, making sure that accommodation providers are aware there's been an incident. But equally, if an incident occurs in um, accommodation, how do they get access and who do they call? Is there some kind of either daily report system or some kind of triaging process and some information communication system that is clearly identified so that someone takes responsibility to actually act on that information and to work collaboratively. And I think it's these kind of processes which actually make things work well for a student. And and some of the work, you know, that David and Becca were talking about is that when you start looking at real student issues and thinking between organisations about how would we work together to best address this, And what are the kind of issues that this presents and how can we problem solve those issues and come up with a solution, which we'll try, but we'll also review so that we continue to improve and actually work better and in a proper partnership together. Mm, Thanks, Joan. I think that's quite a good segue into our next topic, which is a very sensitive topic, but very important and one that we've touched on already, which is student suicide. Fortunately, very rare, but of course, with huge, huge impacts for parents, of course, but also for the whole student and university community. And we've said that all of you are involved in suicide safer and postvention work. What's the latest thinking in this area? And can we ever get to a place of zero student suicides? Joe, can I start with you? In terms of suicide, it's interesting. There was data recently presented by Lewis Appleby about the impact of COVID on suicide rates and actually showing in the general population that there doesn't appear to have been an impact, or at least it's not been revealed yet. And we have Office for National Statistics data due to be published on the 31st of May which will specifically look at the impact on suicide rates in students. So we don't know the impact of COVID yet in terms of suicide rates, um, but we will have some data on the 31st of May published, which will take us up to the end of 1920. That's really interesting. Thank you. So what you're saying is that so far there doesn't seem to have been a, an increase in the suicide rate. What what we know in the general population from yeah. the National Confidential Inquiry data is that there doesn't appear to have been the anticipated elevation in suicide mm-hmm. rates that we might have anticipated, although where there have been rises, it has been with young people. So we might predict mm-hmm. that possibly we might see the same with students because they, they will follow what happens in the general population. Obviously, students are young people and therefore follow patterns that we see in the general population that typically we know that, that actually the rates tend to be slightly lower. So um, mm. that's one thing we need to be aware of, that although they follow general population rates, they don't necessarily follow them exactly. I've been involved in work to reduce suicide generally and internationally. And one of the things that I was involved with was an initiative called Early Intervention in Psychosis, where there were quite high suicide rates for young people. 
And I realised that to some extent I had been trained in a complacency of sort of expecting a certain rate. And when we challenged that and actually started looking at how we could build lives that young people would want to be in and futures that they wanted to be in, we were able to dramatically drive down the suicide rates, not only in the UK, but also internationally. That thinking, I suppose, I I brought to the university sector where, I mean, you mentioned it's a rare event. And it reminds me of some of my work with serious mental health problems where it's a low incidence phenomena but it's high cost. It's one of those things where it's harder to resource because you think, well, it it doesn't occur that often. Therefore, we're perhaps taking a sledgehammer to crack a nut. However, when it does happen, it has high cost, high impact on the whole organisation and long-term consequences. And in fact, can have a ripple effect in terms of contagion clusters, which we've seen in a number of places. What I would say is, one is first of all, recognising this happens. Secondly, actually recognising across the sector, this is an issue. And when it happens, it's a high cost issue. So what resources can we put in place? And it always reminds me of um, a rounders pitch. On a rounders pitch, you want the play to be on the pitch. You want people running around from post to post. But you have to have a backstop in place. Because when the ball goes behind, it stops play. And in a way, suicide prevention is like having a backstop. You need the backstop to prevent the ball going out of play. A lot of your energy and attention is going to be on the field in terms of maintaining student well-being, mental health, addressing early signs of mental distress, and then moving into how we manage more, more serious mental health problems emerging. But we also need a backstop, which is about what we do at times of crisis or when students are severely distressed. And I think I've seen a change over the last seven years where I've seen universities recognising this is an issue. And I've been involved in working groups with the Universities UK and Papyrus to produce the Suicide Safer Universities Guidance in 2018. We've seen guidance produced in terms of working better with our NHS partners guidance produced. In fact, yesterday, UMAN published some work around information sharing. We've seen data now specifically on student suicide incidents in higher education. So there's a lot of change happening. And with that, what we are trying to do is work to, rather than individual institutions reinventing the wheel, to pull together that learning within the sector, the understanding, the good initiatives, the good practice, so that it can be shared. And um, last year, I published a book with contributors from across the sector on preventing and responding to student suicide, which is the other part of this tripartite picture of prevention, intervention and postvention. Thank you, Joe. And we'll put links to those books and resources in the show notes as well. So much of what you're saying really just shows to me how important it is that we do talk about these things. So we were quite keen to to have this conversation as part of this podcast, even though it is quite an uncomfortable one, because it is by talking that we do uh, improve these things. David, can I come to you just to talk a, a bit more about the suicide postvention work? When I, I kind of like looked at the Universities UK's uh, documentation, I felt it very much talked about the what, so what universities needed to do but not not focusing on the how universities might want to go about it. 
So I've, I've reached out to uh, Universities uh, UK, who put me in touch with Joe. And, and um, we then kind of like talked it through, initially thought about having a, a collaborative meeting. What has happened in the end is that, that we're, we're producing this document by the sector for the sector, which will be a very practical guide for people in my position to be able to respond better to sudden, sudden death. One of the things that's really astounded me from, from the outset of this is, is really how universities, accommodation providers such as uh, Unite, bodies such as the Maritons, Universities UK, Amoshi, government departments, how everyone's really come together and said, look, this is something that's absolutely needed for the sector. It's really great to, to be working on something that, that will be of real practical benefit to universities. Thanks, David. And Becca, did you want to add anything to that as well? Yes, very briefly. I think this particular topic is something that we all feel very passionately about. And I think you can you can tell that by the way that we're, we're talking about the work we're doing. But I think we probably should take some comfort in the fact that we are in the luxurious position of being able to make a difference. So the group of people that are coming together across the sector and that partnership work actually can make a positive change here for this particular age group that we work with, which is predominantly 18 to 24, where that might not be happening for other age groups. We just need to take some comfort in the fact that what we are going to do is make a difference. Any small amount of change we can see on this topic and and any small amount of improvement is a positive step forward. And I think even the fact that we're talking about it now so openly, even though it is a difficult topic, actually shows that we're sort of taking the lid off things a little bit. That's great. And that's what it's all about, isn't it? Okay, we're, we're coming towards the end now. I just want to give you each the same question. What do you think is getting better or has got better for students in terms of their mental health? David, do you want to have a go at that one first? We, we do see increases in students coming forward. So I think it's much easier for students and young people to talk about mental health in, in a way that it, it just wasn't talked about so many years ago. And I think there's been some really kind of like helpful documentaries on, on the television, for example. I'm just thinking about the, the Roman Kemp one where he, he lost a friend to, to suicide. And the message that really came out of that was that if you ask a man if he's OK, he'll say yes. And you need to keep on asking him to, until you get the right answer. So you don't just ask once. Building on on that, and one one point I was wanted to bring about was was really about trying to be innovative in in the way that we we approach this. And, and I'm very mindful of one of the things that that our students' union did before lockdown. Now they picked up on a a piece of research that men were much more likely to talk to their barber about mental health than they were to a clinician. They employed uh, as a pop up for a day. Barbers who were also trained counsellors and gave students free haircuts in the quad at Middlesex as a way of highlighting that. What a great example. Thanks, David. Um, Becca, what are your thoughts? Uh, Two things I think are better. I think people in general, but particularly young people, have become more alert to how they're feeling in terms of mental health and physical health and are more engaged in both of those topics. And in doing that, they're more likely to ask for help if they need it. So that's the first part of it. The second part of it is I think that we as a sector, and by that I mean education rather than accommodation, but as a sector have got better at early intervention. 
training people to look for those signs and symptoms, doing things like mental health first aid, things like look after your mate workshops. So by putting in some of that early intervention and coupling with that with students being more aware of how they're feeling and what they might need means we've kind of met halfway. So I think there's been huge progress in that area where if you look back 10 years, we didn't really talk about early intervention and students were less likely to ask for help, whereas now we're kind of making it much more accessible. Thanks, Becca. And Joe? Yeah, it's interesting. I was just thinking about what I'd observed. I think one thing that I've seen is a move from mental health issues being the role or responsibility of student support to it being everybody's business. I've seen a lot more people getting involved in the discussion, debate, provision and seeing it as part of their role. I think we've seen a lot of players coming into the sector who are bringing, adding value. You know, I'm just thinking Charlie Waller are about to publish guidance on staff talking to students about suicide. Um, They produced mental health modules, training modules. We've seen organisations like Papyrus, Minds, Student Minds, all bringing in different resources from different angles, whether it be for students, for staff, online, face-to-face. We've seen quality checks like standards, and I was thinking particularly about the Student Minds Mental Health Charter. We've also seen, I think, a bit more policy and government involvement, perhaps not as much as we'd like to see, but we've certainly seen ministerial briefings over the last couple of years to universities where mental health is central to that. The other thing that we have seen is better data, because for a long while, we didn't really know what was happening with students because they were lumped in with children and young people. And so it was quite hard to work out what's happening in the sector. And I think we've seen much better data. All of those things have contributed to better awareness, better response. I have seen definite changes in the last eight or nine years that I've been involved in HE. Thanks very much, Joe. So we come to the end of the show now, but really big thank you to my guests today, Joe, David, Becca. It's been really interesting. Thank you so much. We're going to be back again next month with another panel of experts. Do subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app so that you'll never miss an episode. I also want to tell you about a new mini-series that we're going to be running over the summer, Accommodation Matters in Conversation. So these are going to be one-to-one interviews with hand-picked national experts bringing you fresh perspectives and unique insight on student accommodation and the wider higher education world. So we look forward to sharing more of the details on that soon. In the meantime, please take care and we'll see you next time.